Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the Pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Diana Kretzes lived on Hudson's farm on the edge of Campbell River and its estuary for most of her 80-plus years. Born and raised in Campbell River, she received her teaching certificate from the University of British Columbia, which led to teaching stints in Surrey, Revelstoke, and in England. She traveled throughout Europe before returning home to teach in Campbell River, where she met and married Jim Kretz, a logger from Washington State. They moved onto her parents' farm and raised a family. She's also boarded horses for 40 years. She lost Jim to cancer nine years ago, but she stayed on the farm she grew up on, raising hay crops with her brother Keith Hudson. Her life, for as long as she can remember, has been closely intertwined with the Hague Brown family. The Hague Brown kids were her friends. Her parents, Tom and Mavis Hudson, were good friends with Rod and Ann Hague Brown. Tom and Rod, it turns out, had a remarkable amount in common, but more on that in a moment. Diana Kretz joins us today from her home at Sandbar Stables on Hudson's Farm. Diana, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I understand you have a reading for us. Yes, I've got the chapter in the book about livestock, and I chose that part because I used to also milk a cow, and this is basically what this little part is about about Roddy and milking, and Anne. (laughs) Anne's wartime experiences with them confirmed in her a love for cows and barns and milking time that transcends mere economics, so we share the thing between us. I milk in the morning and Anne milk at night, unless some exigency of domesticity prevents her. I still question the economics. Feed bills mount up very quickly, and it's wonderful how much time one can spend on a cow. And I resent milking when, as often happens, it interferes with something else I have to do and want to do. But it is true that I enjoy milking nine days out of ten. The simple routine is both a relaxation and a stimulation. Walk over to the barn, along the path, through the birch trees, and across the road. Feed grain to the chickens, shake down laying meal in the hopper, check the chicken house, and collect the eggs. Back in the barn, put dairy feet in the manger and hear the clatter of the bucket, echoed by Primrose's quick step coming into her stall. Wash the udder with warm water and feel the milk flow down to swell the teats. The stool and the milk bucket, 
milk drumming into the bottom of the pail. A pause to put some in the barn cat's dish before the chickens come up from their grain and chase her away from it. At the start of a day, the mind is quick and lives on whatever lies ahead. Evening milking is a relaxation from the day's demands and a purification, a clean and valid restoration of humility. Milking a cow is reality. It is fundamental, utterly important, an age-old human task. Too many things can happen in the course of a day to destroy a man's sense of proportion. There are little triumphs and successes, the too easy praise that one takes to oneself too easily. People come more humbly than they should for advice or help. One sits in court attended by magnificent men in uniform and dares to judge one's fellow men. Those things swell in a man as they should not, build his petty self-importance as he would not have them build it. The quiet half-hour in the barn, on a summer evening, or with a winter storm flickering the lantern light, changes all this, sets it back in proper proportion. True confessions, Diana, I have never milked a cow. (laughs) I doubt that I ever will, but but this section in Measure of the Year is one of my favorites. Oh, is it? It's a classic example of Haig Brown not only going into great detail about the milking of the cow and how important it is and the personalities of the different cows and the different approaches, but having said all that, he actually starts out by sounding as though the milking a cow was the last thing he would ever want to do. (laughs) The start of the piece that you read, here we are. Before I was married, I was, like most woodsmen, very sensitive about doing farm work. In the circles I moved in, it was considered the height of unwisdom to learn to milk a cow or to admit the skill if one had it. Far too often, one was staying at a stump ranch where there were cows. Cutting wood, hauling water, mending fences, even pitching hay were acceptable tasks. Milking cows was avoided, if possible. And then he goes on to uh, get into detail with his neighbor, Reg Pidcock, whose house he wants to rent. And Reg breaks it to him that he's going to have to milk the cows. And so with great finality, in one of Haig Brown's shorter sentences, he says, I wanted the house, so I learned to milk. (laughs) That's lovely. (laughs) And then he goes into this wonderful, extravagant detail that you were reading for us about the end of the day and how it keeps one humble and... He's got more in there about milking a cow than I ever would have considered. Yes. But that's the wonder of Haig Brown. You had firsthand experience. You obviously milked cows in your time on your farm, the Hudson Farm. I was given a a nice little stool, a nice little bucket when I was young, and we had a cow called Victoria. And I thought this was just for fun, and it ended up being, I was trading for a job, obviously, (laughs) with my dad. (laughs) But then I didn't do it all the time. No, he did it mostly. There's something about sitting with a cow and leaning your head against their side. It's a warm sort of feeling to be with them. You know, they're a nice animal. Well, not all are nice. Some kick the bucket over, but there's some that enjoy the the comfort of a human being, too. A different use of the phrase kicking the bucket? Yes. (laughs) Which can only make one wonder. So let's do some backgrounding here, Diana. Hudson's Farm, what can you tell me about that in relation to Above Tide and Haig Brown House? They were two different farms, but very much intertwined. Intertwined because of our children's ages and because our parents' ages. Canberra River wasn't very big then, and their backgrounds were similar in many ways. 
you know, the adults. And we didn't live that far apart. So we lived a similar type of life with animals and making money out of animals. Incomes were low then. It was just all common sort of ground, wasn't it? At Above Tide, I'm looking out at the river, and if I go downriver to my right and follow it to the tidewater, essentially, and take a left, I wind up on Hudson's farm. That's right. You're down past which was the Vanstone farm, Perkins farm, then the Vanstone farm, and then the Hudson farm, all along the, that part of the estuary. This was a trip you made, I'm sure, back and forth and back and forth many, many times as you played at both respective farms with both sets of kids. Mostly I was with the girls, with Valerie and Mary. Valerie's a year older than me and Mary's a year younger, so we were together a lot. And Mary mostly was the one that came into our place. Valerie had other things going on in her life, sports and things. So it was just a natural friendship, I would say. No. <laughs> and then later, Keith and Alan were similar age, worked out. Describe for me a Hudson Farm in terms of what, it all, what all you were, you were raising out there. My dad had sheep, and Roddy and Ann had sheep. They had a few just to keep the grass down in the fields. My dad had cattle, which were beef cattle, and also for cows for milking. And the sheep, of course, were sold as lamb for meat. And wool was sold to the Native Indians and locals if they wished to work on wool. And that was basically cows and sheep. And, and then at Christmas time, we always, in the spring, bought a, a whole bunch of turkeys. Well, first years, we used to raise our own turkeys. But later, we ended up buying them from Courtney when they were poults. And we sell Christmas turkeys every year, dead turkeys, <laughs> like he'd have to kill them and <laughs> And we'd have to pack them off in the car to people's homes that had ordered them. It was quite different to now. You wouldn't put meat in cars. And eggs. We had well, probably 60, 70 chickens. And my mum would take the eggs to the grocery store in exchange for groceries. This was all in the 1940s. You know, wasn't <laughs> Finances weren't great. So Hig Brown speaks quite eloquently about the cows and how they are the the base uh, upon which the economic planning, the existence of the farm depends. He does not speak so highly of the sheep. And I'm trying to remember quite how he put it, but it was something along the lines of the cow pays off and the economic plus minus of the Sheep is far more questionable. Yeah, they might keep the grass down, but you have to measure that against the damage they do when somebody leaves the wrong gate open and they eat all your flowers or otherwise. So I get the impression, not only was he not quite so fond of the sheep, but I don't think they had as many sheep as, as Hudson Farm, did they? No, I think they only had, I don't know whether there was about 10 or 12 of them or not, maybe not even that many. They were just basically there to keep the grounds down. And you're right, sheep will go through a small hole and find something that's enticing to eat when they shouldn't. <laughs> no wonder Roddy didn't want them, not where the lawn and where the rose patch was. The sheep were kept out of bounds. <laughs> now, the sheep have an interesting connection to fishing that I would not have ever guessed at until I saw mention of it through the Campbell River Museum, I believe it was, and then heard your story in regards to the color of the wool, as I understand it, the sheep at above tide tended to be black? 
Well, Mary and I talked about that just recently when I told her that we were going to do this interview. And she said, well, your dad got black sheep after we did. And, of course, we've always sold them to the Cowichan people. And so that, of course, would add to it, having the black wool as well as white. The Cowichan people who would make the famed Cowichan sweaters. The natural lanolin in them to keep them rainproof. Which were, in many cases, the apparel of choice for Taiyi fishermen and others who were out in the weather. That's correct. And so there's kind of a full circle sheep thing happening there (laughs) from above tide and from the Hudson's Farm that I never would have considered in the past. I can't remember, but I think that my dad, when a sheer sheep, it rolls into a ball and it's a nice, easy thing to transport and tie it with a string. I think my dad probably brought the higbound sheep's wool to our place for the sales. I don't know how they worked that all out. But I don't think Roddy was selling wool. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I think my dad totally took that project on. Because my dad would shear the sheep for them. So let's talk about your dad and Rod. I didn't know this either, but they had a remarkable amount in common that I guess they didn't know either until after they met here in Campbell River, but very much in common going all the way back to their days in England. Yes. Now, they both went to Charterhouse School. Both had been to boarding school, and then, and then also Charterhouse was the next step up, I gather. I really don't know much of the history of that, except that I know they both went to Charterhouse. They're different ages. My dad was older, so he didn't know Roddy there. So they were at the same school, although at different times. Yes. They wind up halfway around the world <laughs> in Campbell River, not that far away from each other both in the farming business. I believe they both marry in the 30s. Yes. They both establish their farms in Campbell River. And and do you recall hearing how they first became aware of each other? I know that's a little before your time. Yeah, I have no idea, except that Campbell River was small. And I imagine it'd just be a natural introduction. People knew each other in those days. My dad bought raw land that had been logged. Roddy was on, I think, the Pidcock property. Basically, a lot of that was cleared already. I think there's interactions. And I gather that little part in the river where the rocks, we all used to swim as kids, that my dad and Roddy, with our horses, moved the rocks in the river, which you can't do these days, and made that jutting out piece so we could all swim and he could fish. He made like a little sort of stabilize the river current by having that rock wall in the river itself. That would be frowned upon these days. (laughs) That would be very much frowned upon these days. (laughs) In those days, of course, there was no dam and the river was, you know, the tide was low. And of course, in the summer, it was low. So they could move things around with animals, with a horse. Later, in the 50s, we had the dam that controlled everything. So it's a different world in the 40s. Totally. The summer flows would have been, in most cases, quite a bit lower than anything we see now. Very low, yes. Yeah, Elk Falls was even get a little bit less, even though it was a sight to go and see, but the river itself was, was lower. So take me back to your usual suspects. You and Keith would be hanging around or traveling back and forth from farm to farm with the likes of Valerie and Mary and Alan and Celia. Yeah. Well, Celia was born 10 years after us, so she wasn't really in 
in with our, our age group. She was the baby. We were 10 and 11 and when she was born. Who else would have been part of that crowd, the neighborhood kids? Well, Joe Painter was part of our lives because we Painter's Lodge. And the Painter family bought the land from my dad. Painters lived on the spit. They bought the land that Painter's Lodge sits on from my father. And then Joe and I and, of course, Valerie were all, and Mary were all similar age. And we also biked to school in those days. You know, we biked back and forth. We biked from our farm to where Savon is now. That was where the old Camp River School was. Joe and I biked. Mary and Valerie biked. That was our uh, transportation <laughs> bicycle <laughs> to go to school. And then I guess you biked back and forth between the farms, too, when you yeah when you were playing. It was a gravel road, and we'd bike along and over the old wooden bridge and then turn right to go to Hague Brown's and past the Pidcock's house and then to Hague Brown's house. Reg Pidcock, we used to call him Uncle Reg. And where Campbellton's school was, he had a big raspberry patch. They built a school in that patch when after Reg had sold it. It was all sort of intermingled with... <laughs> People that had crossed paths all the time. <laughs> Your father and mother were really good friends in time with Roderick and Anne Haig Brown. Yes. I am told that the families were so close that you as children were allowed to address your seniors, Rod and Anne Haig Brown, as Rod and Anne. It was Roddy to me, Roddy and Anne. And my parents were Tom and Mavis to Valerie and Mary and Alan and Celia. <laughs> yep. I find that quite interesting. It sounds almost refreshing now, but was that ever a point of discussion? You didn't call your dad Tom, did you? I did, but that was his choice. That was unusual. And I used to also have to say to people, he is my real dad, you know. He was like that. He liked to be on first-name basis. And I think it was a lot to do with his strict upbringing, thrown into boarding school. And he wanted it to be more open, things to be more open. And he lost his mom when he was 12. He wanted a relationship with his children in a different way. We were told to call him Tom. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> so when you were biking back and forth, where were your favorite hangouts on either farm or in between? Well, they used to come and go down to our beach in the summers, and I used to go swimming with Mary and Valerie behind that wall of, of stone that was built. <laughs> we could swim in fresh water, and when they came, they'd swim in salt water. It was just something different to do. And they helped with the haying. We used to do haying, and sometimes they'd come out and help. I don't know, we're just, just playing. We used to play ball. We used to play all kinds of things. We had trees to climb. We had a lot of freedom as children, as long as we did our chores, and and our parents were told where we were. As long as we told them where we were, we could bike back and forth. It was a gravel road up Meredith Hill, and then past the Perkins Farm, and past the Vanstone Farm, and then into our farm. It wasn't difficult. Sleepovers in their respective barns? Not very often. When we got older, we just did it for fun when we were in our early teens. That was fun. I think Mary lost a hairbrush <laughs> in the hay. <laughs> Now, you would have known Anne as the mother, organizer, cook, gardener, and part of the cow milking team, of course, yeah. at Above Tide. You would have known her when Roddy was away? You know, when you're children, you didn't think about things during the war, about who was where. At least I didn't. You know, you just accepted what was in each household. 
I don't remember worrying about Roddy being away or when him came home. I don't remember that at all. You're sort of busy with your own little lives when you're a child. I remember Anne made fabulous ice cream out of the cream from the cow, put them in the little ice trays that were metal in the fridge. It's just hard to visualize when you're a child's memory about what adults are doing. What do you think adults do, you know? It's true. You only really start thinking of your parents as adults once you kind of get into adulthood and start to realize, maybe firsthand, some of the things that they were dealing with. Everything was day-to-day, wasn't it, when you were a child? Were you aware of Roddy as the writer as opposed to the farmer? Oh, I remember that. We weren't allowed to play anywhere near the study. We had to be quiet. We had to be a play away from the building because he was working. He also built a beautiful wooden swing set that was very tall. It was over 15 feet, maybe it was 18 feet, with huge timbers away from the house and near the cottage that was on the property. And it had a seesaw as well attached to the whole thing. It was a wonderful place to play. The swing was a rope swing that swung way out and back. And the seesaw was really big, solid wooden thing. They were beautiful. And there was a bar you could swing like a monkey, a hand bar, a steel bar you could swing on. <laughs> it was a great thing he designed. Something a lot of people don't recognize or realize, I should say, at Above Tide is that so much of the woodwork, including a lot of the furniture, was built by Rod Higbrown. That's right. I love that table in the dining room now with the different ends to it. And it's meant to fit up against that big bay window. That's right, yes. Anne used to make really nice birthday cakes for the, her kids. They had a, a form that was a shape of a, of, a, of a lamb, and she'd bake the cake in this metal form, and it was fluffy icing. She did things that were really neat. <laughs> Rod talks about Anne as the economic planner of the farm. Where is it here? He says, This is economic wisdom of high order in any woman married to a writer of books. And it seems to work out well enough to keep us, at most times, within calculable distance of solvency. (laughs) I think so, because she had an incredibly big vegetable garden with many types of vegetables. She did the milking. She did the typing. When he wrote, she typed. The typewriter was in the kitchen, but it was underneath the bedroom of Marion Bowery. And when you stayed overnight, you could hear her typing at night, type, 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 and then the typewriters in those days had a bell that you'd slide the carriage back and we'd hear her type, 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 type every night. She was busy. She was incredible. We didn't realize at the time that they took in women that would be doing gardening or something in the yard, but they were women that needed help. And we always just thought there were people helping with the gardening, but they were battered women, obviously needed a hand somewhere along the way. And we never realized, in the course of from that, in the Ann Elmer house years later, didn't it? For years, they had people there that we just took as somebody helping. But they were helping people. Once again, the blissful ignorance of children. That's right. You, you weren't really clued into what was going on there. Adults didn't talk about situations like that either in front of children. You're right. <laughs> it's been a topic of conversation for us, of course, but... Do you think in the grand picture that really we hear so much about Rod Haig Brown and that maybe Anne does not get the attention she deserved in terms of her accomplishments, her contributions to the community? 
You mean at the time she was alive? Because certainly afterwards, because people wouldn't know, but afterwards, you know, when Anne Helmerhausen and people started to realize what was going on at the Hague-Brown House. It was developed as a result of Anne's help with these women. And Roddy, of course, coached people, but we didn't know what was up. We would never have known anything about people in that paragraph saying that people would come more homely than they should, I'm reading it, and ask for advice or help. We didn't know what people were doing when we were children. Did you have an image of him as the magistrate, or was that just something done elsewhere that you were not aware of? No, we knew he was the magistrate, but it was later. I mean, he wasn't when we were very young. He was a magistrate later. You know, you, res- you respected his image of whatever. Yeah, I can say when the National Film Board came and did Country Magistrate, we were all a little bit in awe, and that was exciting. <laughs> had film people there, and... I remember Mary said they had to, the scene of eating, they had to eat lettuce about three times or four times. <laughs> Lots of little stories about that. But we weren't allowed to be there during the filming time. We'd be in the way. You know? <laughs> and you mentioned Anne at the typewriter uh, at night. She was also, in many ways, as I understand it, the gatekeeper who was trying to keep you kids from playing too close to the study window, but also trying to keep people, visitors, from intruding on Roddy when he was supposed to be writing. They would come to the door and she'd just say no, because people didn't really realize that he was earning a living writing. I remember my dad went once, and he wanted to see Roddy about something, and Anne said no, (laughs) and he came away quite quite amazed. (laughs) I can see it now, him sort of shaking his head well. (laughs) Oh, dear. So she was the guard at the gate to keep him going. (laughs) When did you first come to the writings of Rodhig Brown? What was your first book? I think probably Measure of the Year was sort of the first because it mentions people we know, including my dad and including other people we know. And then when I was in England, I read the whale people to the boys. I taught at a boys' boarding school, and I read the whale people to them and got them to write to Roddy when I was in England. And then he wrote a letter back to them saying, thank you for telling me what you enjoyed in my book. That was fun. He was a marvelous writer of letters, a man of letters. His correspondence was obviously, the ones I've seen are wonderfully articulate. You can tell he enjoys writing them. The ones I've seen, are, of course, are on the above-tide letterhead. They look quite official. And I can't remember which of the Hague Brown kids told us that there were times when he far more enjoyed responding to letters than knuckling down and working on whatever the book was at the time. And so, one of Anne's jobs as well was to, was to keep the correspondence under control. Oh, I see. So, you have stayed on Hudson's Farm. You've been away. You've come back. You've been there for most of your life. And up the river, you still have Hague Brown House that you can visit. The kids are no longer here, but you've stayed very much in contact with them, I understand it. Oh, yes, we do. I, we email. Thank heavens for email. <laughs> and telephone once in a while. Not very often, but once in a while, you get a whim to just connect up with Valerie and Mary. And Alan and my daughter kept in contact because Alan's writing and she was. So that kept that connection. And Celie, I sent an email to Celie for her birthday on October 7th this year. I try and keep tab. And she's back in Ontario. 
It's just nice to have connection. And I understand not too long ago you were out kayaking with Mary. Yes. <laughs> we took the kayaks into Bakey Island area and up the river in the canals or the channels, I mean, the spawning channels. That was a, a month ago. Oh, that recently? Yeah, that recently. Wonderful little narrow protected waterways that wind back and forth. They are absolutely beautiful in there, and you don't even realize there are cars and traffic that are fairly close. It's just beautiful. So the measure of the year was your first. I think so, yeah. <laughs> and what we've discussed with others, of course, is, is how it stands up. It was published 1950 for the first time which is uh, over 70 years ago now. How does it stand up? Why does it or how? What do you mean? It's into its third or fourth printing. Yeah. Hopefully there are more. It is not a book that has faded back into the mists of time. There seems to be a relevance to it. I think because it's it's living. It's like a diary of what life is, isn't it? It's a story. People like stories. When you were, and it sounds like an idyllic existence as kids, on one farm or the other, but these were working farms. It wasn't all play, was it? I mean, you mentioned you were checked out for your ability to milk a cow, and then I'm sure those skills were put to use. <laughs> yes, I ended up buying a cow when my children were little, and I bought her from the Courtney auction, and so my children had raw milk. Cows are tested for TB, so it's safe. So we had a cow again when I was married. I enjoyed the cow. It's just part of my existence was having cows. And and uh, so I decided to buy one when Jim and I were married. So <laughs> Jim wasn't interested in the cow, <laughs> except to pat it. <laughs> you were also boarding horses. And did the Hague Brown horse or horses spend time on Hudson's farm? They didn't have horses then. Celia had them later years. My dad's horses were work horses. They pulled the plow and they pulled the hay rake and they pulled the stump puller to help pull the stumps out with the cable. No, they were working horses that he had. And I rode them around the farm when I was little. I remember getting Mary to ride a horse. She wasn't particularly keen on riding a horse. And I tied a lunch bucket on. We were going to have a picnic. And with the noise of the metal of the bucket, bucked her off. So that just ended that little part <laughs> She still remembers that. <laughs> horses weren't her bag. <laughs> You've boarded horses out there for many years. Yes. When I quit teaching here, and because I had children, I started boarding horses. Because my daughter had a pony, and then her friend had a pony. And then that ended up more and more, if they could have a place to board a horse. So we built a little boarding stable. And I did it for 40 years. And that worked out quite well. You are a teacher, and Anne was a teacher librarian. Did your paths ever cross in that capacity? No. No, I was finished school in 1955. Anne was not at the school then. But she did help me at the kitchen table with my grade 9 English. I don't know why, but I was struggling away, and so I can remember sitting on that bench at the kitchen table, and Anne helped me get through some part of paragraph writing or something. She was very good that way. Like, I don't know where she had time to do that, but she did for me. She got me going. Hmm. It's been such a pleasure, Diana, and you've got so many memories to share, I'm sure. Is there something that we should be touching on that I have missed out on so far? I just think that they were a very strong tie with my upbringing, and uh, they were part of my life, Anne and Roddy, and of course the, the family. They didn't have aunts and uncles here, and neither did we. 
So as children, it was sort of like a, a replacement of family because we were each just a single family. So we became almost members of an extended family, I guess you would call it. And same with the painter family, I, although they, I called them the painter's family, Joe Painter's parents, Uncle Ned and Auntie June. But it was sort of a like making family to me. That's my impression. So there was always a closeness to us and to each other. Especially, as you say, among peoples who came from elsewhere. Yeah, and similar background, yeah, yeah. Or similar interests, I guess, yeah. Both farming. Was your dad as, as, as much into fishing as he was into farming? Oh, no, no, no. He spent a lot of time land clearing. It, his, he worked many hours, and he, he did all the plowing with the horses. He did all the work. I remember going fishing. He liked to build. He built a boat. He had a sawmill. He built a sawmill. He built a boat. We used to go fishing off from the sandbar between Painter's Lodge and the Tai Pool. In those days, you were allowed to fish out there. And we'd go fishing for supper, for meat. But no, he wasn't into a big fishing thing. His time was occupied keeping the land going. He always carried a shovel and would nip a weed or a thistle or something to keep things going. <laughs> I feel the same way these days. <laughs> you have to nip little things in the bud or they grow. No, he did a lot of work on the land by hand, <laughs> digging with a shovel. And I look back on those days. He didn't have power saws and he didn't have tractor and people have now. And you've kept the farm going. You're still turning out hay crops. Yeah, the farm is legally split in half. Keith and Gay have half, and Jim and I had half on this side. It was legally split. But we still keep farming. By having the hay crops, we share the same machinery. We each have bits and pieces, and we share what we have. That keeps it all going. How's the hay business? Fine. We make people from Quadrum, people from Cortez, and people from Sayward come and buy hay. Yeah, that's good. Good to hear. Yeah. Is there anything else, Diana, that we that I've missed that I should ask you about in terms of just that the relationship between these two farms and the two families who, who lived on them? There's just a common feeling of affection for each other. And it's wonderful. Mary and Valerie and I are in our 80s now. And, and looking back, it's really nice that we had parents that knew one another. A lot of people don't have contact with people they knew and their children. There's a special warmth of knowing people for all your life. I've known Mary for every single day of her life because I'm a year older. <laughs> we tease about that. Yeah. There's a special meaning having friendship for many, many years, for your whole lifetime. Like being able to pick your family, which... Yeah, it's a privilege, isn't it? Indeed it is. Diana, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us on Taking Measure. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan. <laughs>